17 years ago, back in 2005, uh, there was a book that came out uh, that set out to determine uh, what the dominant religion was among contemporary American teenagers. Uh, It was written by two sociologists named Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton. And this book, you can still find it on Amazon. The book's called Soul Searching. And in this book, what they wanted to do was figure out what came into the minds of 13 to 17-year-olds when they thought about God. And what they did, they just interviewed teenagers all over the country, Midwest, West Coast, East Coast, everywhere, and they asked them all the same set of questions. And they compiled all this really interesting data. And after looking at all the data, they realized that what they discovered was that what they called the de facto dominant religion among American teens. And it wasn't Christianity. Uh, It also wasn't Islam. It wasn't Judaism. It wasn't Buddhism, it wasn't Hinduism, it wasn't even atheism. What these two sociologists found out was what they discovered didn't have a name. It wasn't a thing. So they came up with one. Uh, They named this worldview moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what they call it. Now, it's not as confusing as it sounds, okay? I'm going to explain it. Uh, There's three aspects of this religion of these teenagers that was really telling. The first one was the word moralistic. All these teenagers thought, hey, what God wants us to do is he wants us to be good. He wants us to be moral people. The goal in life is to be good, not bad. Because to them, good people are who go to heaven, not bad people. So it was very moralistic. The second word was the word therapeutic. Okay, these teenagers that were surveyed, uh, they thought that the central goal in life was to be happy, was to feel good about themselves, right? Uh, God really isn't needed in your life unless there's a crisis. Uh, if you're feeling good, just, you know, leave God alone because you're feeling good, right? You're accomplishing your goal in life. But the last word is deism. And this is the idea that God exists, that he created everything. He set everything in motion, but he has since left He's uninterested. He's uninvolved. God got the party started, (laughs) but he's long since left the building. Like, that's kind of the mindset. So this is what all these teenagers, they were sharing their answers, and these sociologists found out, like, okay, this is what they believe. Now, this research, it didn't really cause a major shift, like, in the American church or, or in Christianity or anything like that. It was just really interesting stuff. But... This research has proven to be way more impactful than those sociologists had thought. You know why? What happens to teenagers? They grow up. They don't stay teenagers forever. A 14 to 17-year-old back in 2005, they're 30 today. And they're 35. So that mindset, that worldview, moralistic, therapeutic deism, that has become the de facto dominant religion among millennials. And much of biblical Christianity is lost in that worldview. You don't see a lot of Bible verses that really, that were shared in that data. But one of the most glaring things we see absent, I think, in that worldview is sin. There's nothing about sin. Here at Riverview, we're currently walking through a series called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, it's this historic confession of core doctrines of our faith. And towards the end of the Apostles' Creed, we see four words We see it say this, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So what do we mean when we say that? What is the forgiveness of sins? Why is that a crucial doctrine 
to our Christian faith. Well, today we're going to unpack that. Uh, we're going to look at that dense but very short phrase in the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to be jumping all over the Bible. <laughs> uh, so if you have a Bible, buckle up, because we're going to be everywhere. Uh, but if you don't, we will follow along on the screen. So I'm actually going to pray for us before we start, uh, and then we'll jump into it. So let's pray. God, we do thank you for this opportunity to, to worship today. Uh, and God, as we think about this doctrine of the forgiveness of sins, how God, what comes into my mind is sin is often just a bad word in churches uh, or in, in culture. We don't like that word, but God, we see it in your word and we see this doctrine very clearly. So God, I pray that you help us believe this and know this more deeply today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So we're gonna be starting in Genesis. So because in really in order to understand what sin is, uh, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. The book of Genesis is the first book of our Bibles, the first book of the Old Testament. And in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see God create. He creates everything out of nothing. God speaks and things come into existence. It's this beautiful display of power and creativity and, and beauty. But, but that goodness is pretty short-lived because Genesis 3 happens, and we see our first parents. We see Adam and Eve, the first human beings God created. We see them disobey God. They do the one thing God had asked them not to do. See, God had given them an incredible garden to enjoy, to live in. It provided food for them, shelter for them. God would visit them. He would walk with Adam and Eve in this garden. It was this amazing thing. And God says, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but there's one I would really appreciate it if you did not eat from. It's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate of it, God said they were going to die. And we see how all of this goes down in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, so here in Genesis 3, we see another character uh, come in here, and this is the serpent. This is Satan. Okay, this is the enemy of God in this garden as a serpent. And what he does is he deceives Adam and Eve. He tries to get them to do this very thing that God had told them not to do. And he does so in a really crafty way. He deceives them. Right? He, he convinces Adam and Eve that God is holding out on them. Do you even see how he asked the question? Did God really say, I mean, like, I think teenagers have, like, inherited this. Like, did, did dad really say we couldn't take the car? I mean, come on. Like, this is what he's doing. He's weaving this tale. Like, did God really say that? And we see Eve answer incorrectly. She's like, no, he, he didn't say that. He said we couldn't eat of this tree and we couldn't touch it. And that's not right. That's not what God said. But it's at this point that Adam and Eve, they disobey. They, they bite. They, you know, they, they eat the fruit. They do what they want instead of what God 
wants. And we see here Satan's strategy. We actually see a lot about sin and what he does. First, we sin when we believe wrongly about who God is. Adam and Eve chose to disobey because they were convinced God was holding out on them. In that moment, we see it in what Satan says, right? He he lies like, hey, you're not going to die if you do this. In fact, God knows if you do it, your eyes are going to be opened. It's this lie that convinces Adam and Eve that instead of being good, God is actually cruel. That he's imposing this restriction on them. By choosing to eat it, they're going to see the world as it really is. You know, when we sin, even for a second, this is what comes into our minds. We're convinced God is holding out on us. He doesn't want us to be satisfied. If God truly loved us, he wouldn't have imposed that restriction on us. Why doesn't he just let us do what we want? We think this way. But the second thing that happens is when we sin, we choose to be our own God, even for just a moment. Because after Satan convinces them, Notice the last five words he says to them. He makes it irresistible. You will be like God. That's what Satan says to Adam and Eve. How we define sin at Riverview is anytime we fail to reflect God's image. And we do that a lot, right? We do it in our nature. We do it with our attitudes. We do it with our actions. But this is what we're getting at here. When we sin, we're choosing to be our own God. We don't need a higher being to tell us what to do or what we shouldn't do. Our way, not God's way, is the best. And that's what Adam and Eve chose. This is how sin entered the world. How it infected all of humanity. How it infected all of creation. And as you read on in the Bible from this point of Genesis 3 on, you see a major difference between how God views sin and how we do. Because sin to God is a really big deal. But for us, meh, we're like, no, not that big of a deal. Over and over again. This was such a big deal to God that he created a system to deal with it. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system that God created in order to help people see just how big a deal sin was. There were specific things that God said, you have to do all these things when you sin. And not just that, but God set aside a whole group of people. (laughs) They were Levites. These were priests. Their only job was to be sin doctors. Like they were priests. Their whole job was to help people deal with their sin. And some aspects of their job were pretty gross. Uh, They were like pastors who were also butchers. Um, Like if you read the Old Testament, you're like, they had a nasty job. Because what they did all the time, a person would bring them an animal, and those priests would sacrifice that animal for that person's sin over and over again. And this was the system God set up because there was something that had to die for sin or to make atonement for. And this wasn't coincidence because you remember what God said back in Genesis? What the consequence of sin would be? It would be death. So people knew this. If you look back in Genesis, it's really interesting what happens. Adam and Eve, they eat this fruit, and their eyes are opened, and they immediately realize that they're naked. They experience shame for their sin. So God, he, 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 he kind of tells them all these consequences, like, okay, this is what's going to happen now. But in the midst of that, God actually provides for them 
you'll see in Genesis that God provides them with clothes from animal skins. How do you get animal skins for clothes? You kill an animal. The first death we see in creation is God killing an animal for people. And then we see it go on from there with this system. But even with this regular rhythm of sacrifices and rituals, the people in the Old Testament, they still didn't get it. They didn't see how big a deal this was. It was a box for them to check instead of them seeing with clarity how broken and sinful they were. One of the most sobering examples we have of this is King David in the Bible. If, you're, if you've been a Christian a while or grow, grown up in the church, you may know who King David is, but you may not, and that's okay. King David was this guy that God had picked to be a, a, a king of the Jewish people. And one day he's doing what kings do. He's walking around on his palace, hanging out. And he sees this woman far off at her house and she's bathing. Her name's Bathsheba. And David, he orders her over with his people. He's driven by his lust to have her come over to his palace. And it's this really sad story of a king exploiting his power for his own pleasure. He was not thinking about her at all. He's thinking about himself. And while all of this is happening, Bathsheba's husband is fighting for David. He's in David's army. He's one of his best soldiers. His name is Uriah. He's off fighting the war. And David is about to commit adultery with this man's wife. Bathsheba ends up getting pregnant. And David tries to cover it up. He gives Uriah a break from war. He says, Uriah, come on home. Spend some time with your wife. And you know what Uriah says? How could I do that? When my own soldiers are out here dying, living in tents. Uriah doesn't go into his house. <laughs> he sleeps on his front porch. He does not go spend time with his wife. And the story comes to a very tragic end when David tells the commander of that army, next time you're fighting, send Uriah to the front and pull everyone back. David murders this blameless man to cover up his adultery. David doesn't see this. So God helps him see it by sending a prophet named Nathan to help him see what's going on. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, Nathan said to him, Nathan tells him a story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, she grew up with him, and with his children, and from his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Okay, raise your hand if you kind of see where this is going, like a little bit. Okay, you're all smarter than King David. Uh, <laughs> David's like, he's livid at this story. Look at what happens in verse five. Where am I? Back here. David was infuriated with the man in the story and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. I just picture Nathan with like a face palm, right? Like, okay, David. 
Here we go. Here's the hard truth. Verse 7, Nathan replied to David, you are the man. It's you. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, gave your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then, David, have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You, David, struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. David was completely blind to his sinfulness. Even as it's being described to him clearly in that story, he gets all mad for that guy in the story. He doesn't see himself at all. David failed to see his wickedness before God. We do the same thing, don't we? All the time. We fail to see our sin. But it's not really a mystery as to why this happens. If we're living by that moralistic, therapeutic kind of worldview, do you remember the goal? It's to feel good about yourself. Does thinking about sin make you feel good? No way. I think when some people today hear that story in 2 Samuel 12, they could see Nathan as the enemy instead of David. It's pretty rude of Nate just to grill David like that. I mean, geez. Like, you know what David needed? Good vibes. He didn't need, a, he didn't need any of that. Like, we can think that way. We think that way when we prioritize feeling good about ourselves over the truth of our sinful condition. And we do that. I do that. I forsake truth for comfort. I think we do that a lot. There was a worldview study taken last year where 600 millennials were surveyed. This is the age group of those people uh, back in 2005 in this book, Soul Searching. And 84% of this group believed that people are not sinful. In general, they believe that people are inherently good, and if they do bad things, it's like a lapse of judgment. Now, what's the reality, though? (laughs) That's not the truth. We don't see that in the Bible at all. We see over and over again the truth of our sinful condition. I just picked three verses. There are so many more. 1 John John 1, verse 8 puts it pretty clearly. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly Desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Now, that doesn't make us feel good, right? But it's the truth. These are just three passages that really clearly lay out, hey, this is who we are before a holy God. And it's when we get this wrong, our inherent sinfulness 
We're set on a path further away from God because do you know what a small view of sin leads to? An inflated view of yourself. You're good. You're fine. But that also creates something else, an inflated view of self, but a deflated view of forgiveness. If you are a good person, you do not need to be forgiven. Jesus employed a really similar strategy that Nathan had in the Old Testament in sharing truth. Jesus often told stories. And one day, Jesus was eating, this, eating dinner with this religious leader. They were the Pharisees, and this guy's name was Simon. And Jesus is eating with him, and this woman uh, comes up to Jesus, and she's, she's crying, and she starts wiping Jesus' feet with her tears. And she anoints his feet with perfume. And this seems kind of weird for us today. We don't really get that. But what, what this woman is doing in this, in this story is she is acknowledging that Jesus is the king. She's anointing him. She's worshiping him as the savior. And the, you know what the Pharisee does there? He just crosses his arms and he's just looking at her in self-righteous judgment. So Jesus is like, I've got a story for you. <laughs> this is what he says to the Pharisee. This is Luke 7, starting in verse 41. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, Simon the Pharisee, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Then Jesus is like, bingo, good job. You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, did you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little Loves little. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we see two people interacting with Jesus, both sinful, vastly different understandings of their sin. Who does the Pharisee look at in judgment? The woman. He looks at this other woman. How sinful are you? Who does the woman look at? Herself. She looks at Jesus. She doesn't think about the Pharisee at all. She looks at her own sinful condition and her need for forgiveness. She's the one that left that day justified. Not the Pharisee. When we come to a real understanding of our sin, it's a sobering experience. It's dreadful. It's bad news. But that is why our faith is centered on good news. The gospel is good news. And that gospel explains that a perfect person offers perfect and lasting forgiveness for sinful, imperfect people. We often have that moralistic, therapeutic worldview, right? Many of us may just think that God is not involved today. He's far off, that he's distant, that God is essentially a cosmic vending machine 
that we go to when a crisis hits, but if we're good, he's uninterested. That cannot be any more untrue. That is so untrue, and we see that in the gospel. The gospel means good news. That is what it means. And when we say the word gospel here at Riverview, here is what we're saying. We're talking about the perfect life of Jesus, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. This is what we mean when we say gospel. And it's that gospel that shows us that God is not distant. The all-powerful, omniscient creator of everything became a human being. God came near. He entered into the creation he made, the creation that we broke with our sin. And he made a way for us to be forgiven. And he did so in the only way possible. Try and remember back. What is the consequence of sin? It is death. That is why death was needed. We see this in Hebrews 10. Look at what Jesus went through for us. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality of itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Remember them? They were in this system God set up. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made of his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. And then verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. All those times in the Old Testament, people would be bringing these animals for the forgiveness of sins. It never lasted. They had to do it all the time because it would take a perfect sacrifice to obtain perfect and lasting forgiveness for them. And that was Jesus. Well, we call that, we call that the atonement. This is the atonement of Christ. This is paying the debt in full that we owe because of our sin. So how do we attain that? See, I think our bent towards morality, we could hear that, we could hear those verses and leave here today thinking, all right, time to earn that forgiveness. I gotta be good, right? I mean, I have to be forgivable, There's no way that would work for me now. I gotta look like I'm trying. We fall back into morality. Once we're forgivable, that's when I'll be forgiven. Our greatest efforts to be good will never obtain forgiveness. We can't. It is earned for us by a perfect person. And that was Jesus So what do we actually do? Well, instead of leaving here, white-knuckling our way into forgiveness, we simply accept it. We see our sin, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we believe in Jesus. We actually see the weight of sin. We don't look away from it anymore. 
we see that's who we are. But then we look to the perfect man who takes it away. We see our sin clearly. We confess it to God, and we believe that Jesus paid it all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, that verse I talked about, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I didn't read verse 9. I kept it until right now. Look at what it says. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's forgiveness of sin becomes efficacious or successful. It goes into effect for us once we accept it. Our lives accrue a debt that must be paid. And unless another person pays that debt, we are the ones left holding the bill. Forgiveness of sins must be accepted by the person that it's being offered to. And it's offered to all. And that comes through repentance and belief. Repentance is just a Bible word for turning directions. We turn around. We turn from our sin and we turn towards Christ. We believe in him. You know, after Nathan told that story to David, uh, we have David's response. We see how he responds to it in that moment. And it's actually Psalm 51 in our Bibles. If you flip to Psalm 51, at the very top, you'll see what it says. It says, this is a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So Nathan tells David this story. You're the man. It's you. You are the sinful one. And this is how David responds. This is Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins. Blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and the sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and your tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. David finally saw it. He saw his sin. He saw the depth of his brokenness and his depravity. And he says there that a a sacrifice pleasing to God, it wouldn't be another animal. It's a broken spirit. God will not reject a broken spirit who comes to him. That is why in our brokenness, in our broken spirit, our understanding of our sin, we go to God in faith who offers forgiveness through Jesus.
we confess that sin to him, we turn from it, and we believe in his lasting work on the cross. It is his work that has sealed our redemption, paid for past, present, and future sin. You know, for many people today, I think moralistic, therapeutic deism makes sense. But that is not Christianity. And what the Bible shows us about sin tells us that. The central goal of your life, it is not to be moral. It's not to be a good person. You can't be. The goal of life is to love and obey God, to be loved by him. He is the definition of good. He is the standard. No matter how hard we try, we cannot be good enough because of our sin. We are broken and sinful people. A therapeutic life seeking shallow happiness is always gonna leave you empty because nothing apart from God will satisfy you. There's a word that we have for this. It's idolatry. It's when we worship creation over creator. When we expect creation to do things for us that only a creator can. Nothing will bring you more joy than being known by God and knowing him. The gospel shows us that God is not uninvolved, that he's not uninterested. He came near. God's plan was a rescue mission into the mess we got ourselves into. He became a man. He sent us, his son, Jesus Christ, to do the very thing none of us could do. Jesus was the only human being that never needed to bring an animal to a priest for his sin. He never did. But he chose to be the sacrifice for us. He chose to represent us, fallen and sinful people, by dying on a cross for our sins. We cannot lose this. This is core. Our faith rests on the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we're going to sing some more. We're going to respond to this truth in worship. But I actually wanted to end our time this morning reading the Apostles' Creed together. Not only so we can be reminded of this beautiful reality that we are forgiven sinners, like that is who we are, but we cannot be reminded enough of all of those core beliefs of our faith. So I'd love to invite you to stand. We're gonna read the Apostles' Creed together. And then after this, Shauna and Taylor are gonna lead us in some more worship. You can stay standing. But this is what the Apostles' Creed says. Let's read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.